This is Mike Dilk of Relax Back UK. Hi, and thank you for joining me, Mike Dilk, on the Relax Back UK show here on UK Health Radio, your global real feel-good radio station. Now, this is the first show of 2020. I've just went for my jog a little bit earlier today, the first jog of the year, and I really am being so predictable here. I'm hoping to lose a bit of weight this year and do a bit more exercise. Uh, anyway, good luck to anyone who's hoping to stick to some resolutions this year. Maybe this year you've got some exams looming, or perhaps you've got some children that do. My daughter is in the lead up to GCSE exams, and those are exams that uh, children take at 16 in the UK. Well, help is at hand with my first guest today, Dr. Rahul Jandial, neurosurgeon and neuroscientist. And I always thought the psychology of test taking, much like the psychology of an athlete performing under pressure, uh, was very important. He gives advice on how to give yourself the best chances in exams and tests. Then, is anyone planning a family skiing trip this year? I bet it won't be anything like this, ladies. We had one last year, and it was our first ever one where um, our older son, who's who at the time was two, or just a little bit after two, um, got involved, and we went skiing with him in the mornings, and then we had the baby in the rucksack. The other baby was in the rucksack skiing around. Shemi Alcott is an Olympian skier, and she's married to an, another Olympian skier, and she talks about life in the fast lane of, of skiing, her skiing holidays, her injuries, which have been many, and now her life now with children, also a charity that she started to get girls' interest in sport. In fact, she talks about loads of stuff. She really is a very interesting lady. So please do stick around for a fabulous first show of 2020. Thank you. I've spoken with neuroscientist and neurosurgeon Dr. Rahul Jandal previously and we covered the topics of pain and how it might be controlled, how to improve at sport and other endeavours and also extreme physical endurance. All three of these interviews were absolutely fascinating and if you'd like to hear them do go and check out the UK Health Radio website because they they're all still there. The topic today is about helping students stay calm in exams and also how to study for exams. And first of all, I asked if, if the advice for studying and remembering facts might be different for adults uh, to children. Um, that's, a, that's a tricky question. Let's, uh, let's unpack that a little bit. So are, is the goal to be the best performer on an examination and, and thereby being good at learning as well as delivering that knowledge under pressure? Um, which one do you want to tackle first? Ah, well, I suppose they're both quite, can be quite important, but it's, it, I suppose it's, it's more important not just to remember facts because you know you have to know what to do with them. So we're really, I suppose, learning processes or methods. Mm-hmm. I find, um, you know, I was a student for a very, very long time. My kids teased me. I went to 32nd grade. I went to university and then uh, medical school. And then the residency was eight years and a PhD on top of that. And 
And what I realized was people perform better on examinations uh, than their uh, colleagues and classmates, even when sometimes they knew less when you were just sitting around learning and discussing and writing. And I, I believe that um, for students of all ages, uh, as well as for many other people, that the challenge is not just learning, but actually being able to think clearly under pressure when you know your performance is, is of consequence. And so that's called test taking, in the States they call it test taking strategies. But again, those focus on like, how do you learn a phone book? And there are memorization techniques, their organization of your notes. And I always thought the psychology of test taking, much like the psychology of an athlete performing under pressure uh, was very important. And much of what I see is that uh, people stumble on national tests. They go in there, they know they can get into a good university if they do well, and they underperform. And I always found that fascinating. How do, you, uh, how do you get them to perform at the highest level? And the simplest method, without getting into neuroscience and deeper methods and techniques, is to desensitize yourself to the physical space. Often you go and take a test in a foreign space, you're not used to the drive routine, you're not used to what it smells like, the temperature, it's, yeah, they're, it's they're always a good idea. They're fools, aren't they, very often? I know. And it's, I had an Olympian and some athletes tell me, like, if we were given the chance to see the stadium in which we were going to perform the subsequent week, we would go and sleep in there. We would just breathe the air, you know, feel the energy and, and you know, get, get the spatial, get the spatial, um, the spatial, sort of awareness so we could actually focus on the task at hand and not be distracted where the clock is, where the door is, where the drinking fountain is. So I think desensitizing yourself to the space is important. I think also taking the test exactly in the format. So if it's a three hour test or a one hour test, don't break it into pieces because there is an endurance component to test taking. So if it's a three hour test, just get your body ready to be, at its best, your brain at its best for those three hours. Um, endurance does matter. I know in, in, in marathons, some people would say, you know, run, you know, half marathon so you don't wear your body out. But for academic and test-taking performance, get your brain into the habit of revving up for the duration of the test. Because a lot of kids, students, I should say, underperform as they fatigue when the test goes on because they start yeah. off the test so excited, almost too revved up. And then there's a crash towards the end and they underperform. So those are certainly the my memory, elements I've used. Well, mm -hmm. so I was just going to say my memory of three hour long exams is when you're finished, you're just exhausted. <laughs> Depleted. Yeah. How can that be? Depleted. You haven't moved. <laughs> well, that's funny. That's stress, you know, I mean, uh, that's the stress of performance and the stress of, uh, of cognitive uh, performance. It's not just a physical performance that leaves yeah. you fatigued. In fact, some people say that after a, a long run, I feel better, but nobody feels better after a long test. <laughs> so I think that's hilarious, but uh, it's a cognitive depletion um, because you're firing your attention. You know, it's, it's a limit, you know, it's, it's, it's a limited commodity. It's, Attention and focus, uh, willpower is 
is not unlimited. But I, I'd love to talk to you. So those, if I were a student and listening, say, okay, I've got some tips, check out the place before, you know, get, get my brain used to thinking for that time, that I'll make sense. Uh, simple things even like you know have have a long sleeve shirt in case in case it's cold i mean i do that with my three sons i have three teenage sons the most important thing though is a resource available to all of us and practiced by the ancients and now we have some evidence for it is meditation and i and i want to i want to i want to dissect that word a bit it has been um it has been turn into a product here, especially in, you know, in the States, I live in Los Angeles, the mindfulness and meditation. And I don't mean to be disparaging about it. I just feel like it's become something that can only be done in fancy yoga studios or by the beach on a mat and become almost inaccessible to the, to the common person to, unless you're affluent or you have a certain amount of exposure to a certain scene or environment. And, to me, I want to go the other direction with it. It is, it is absolutely um, the most valuable skill you can teach your children as well as any student about test-taking, and that is to meditate briefly before each component of the test. And what you're doing is resetting. You're taking the natural anxiety of the situation and you're just treating that a little bit through, nat through, through natural means of calming yourself. So let's get into the science of that. I, I don't know what mindfulness is. If you're thinking about the tip of Mount Everest and you are in the moment and feeling great, that's, that's fine. But I'm a scientist and I'm a surgeon. I, I like to have some evidence when I share my advice with people because then it's uh, reproducible sometimes and that's important. So when when somebody goes on a deep dive or a Buddhist monk uh, walks over hot coals, and we know we've seen these phenomenal things, what is going on with them? Often, deep divers and Buddhist monks, they can, on command, upon thought, lower their heart rate. And there's a web of nerves on the surface of the heart that sets the pace. You get nervous, it, they, they flicker, they fire faster like a spark plug. If you're sleeping, they slow down. It is irrefutable that people, some people through extensive training can slow down their own heart rates. They can think down their heart rate. That helps if you're going to go, you know, diving in, uh, under the water for a long period of time. Yep. Yep. And so there's proof that we can control um, parts of our body that shouldn't be controllable, right? It's the autonomic nervous system. It's the automatic nervous system, not the I can command it nervous system, if you will. Now, <clears throat> how does that happen? Well, th there's actually, you know, your brain before it sends, the, the, the brain's tail is a spinal cord. It comes out of a hole in the bottom of the skull, but also sends that 12 nerves, paired nerves into your face. They move your eyeballs, they mediate your taste, your cough, your gag. But two of them called the wandering nerve cranial nerve 10, the vagus nerve, they come right down the carotid arteries, the ones you feel for the pulse. They come right down the jugular vein where the, the jaguar tries to bite. And they go onto the surface of your heart. And if you tickle those, you can mess with people's heart rates. 
And that's why they, when you learn CPR, if you're going to be an ambulance driver or EMT, they tell you don't massage, don't check for the pulse on both sides of the neck because that massage will make you pass out. Like there are all these uh, connections between the brain and the body through this nerve, one that runs vertically, and it's in that, gro- uh, in that groove next to the carotid artery and the jugular vein. So right. I always found that fascinating. Is this, is this by accident to- or by design, do you think? Well, uh, no, that's a brilliant question. Um, I know it's by design because the brain has to control the body. Uh, you know, if you're being chased by a tiger, it's not going to want to, you know, finish chewing your fish and chips. It's going to I'll get to that later. So it has to control its digestion and, and stuff like that. But what's more fascinating and back to meditation is can it go the other way? Can the body control the mind? Right. Can that nerve, those nerves coming down, can they be, uh, recruited for other purposes. And I'll tell you an experiment and that's going to show you where, yes, you can control, you can meditate and calm the electricity in your brain. I'm going to show you the proof behind that. So when I was in training in, in, at San Diego for brain surgery, there were children who had epilepsy, aberrant electricity of the brain, much like an arrhythmia is aberrant electricity of the heart. Mm-hmm. And we didn't know what to do. The pills wouldn't work. Certain surgeries wouldn't work. And we would take a little coil, surgical coil, like the spring on the back of a pen and, put, and connect a wire to it. We dissect down to this vagus nerve and we'd wrap it around there and we'd put the generator by the collarbone, much like a pacemaker for a heart patient. And pulsing that vagal nerve with electricity, the signals would run up and the kids would no longer have epilepsy or no longer have seizures. So that is proof that that vagus nerve, the mind-body, the brain-body connection, is a bi-directional street. Right. And, of course, I'm not going to suggest students <laughs> get a little surgery and electrical pulse put in. But it, it asks the question, is there something we can do to borrow that pathway? And it has been shown that deep meditative breathing, I don't know what you're thinking, because that's mindfulness and meditation, but... But a count of four to inhale and holding for a count of four and then a slow, deep exhale. Five or ten of these breaths before you go in to see your boss, before you take a test. Is your own Valium and Xanax, is your own sedative the calming the electricity in your brain? <clears throat> so you'll say, okay, well, you showed me with a little coil, you can do things. Now you're telling me if I breathe a certain way, I can borrow those nerves that are in, in, the, in the sides of my neck to go back into the brain and calm the brain. I, I need more proof from you, Dr. Johnny. Well, give me more proof than that because I don't want to have, you know, you, you're saying these are things you've seen and can prove. Last year, there was a study done. And some of those same kids that have those uh, aberrant brain electricity, we just can't figure out what's going on. Right. And we don't know where the nidus is, the epicenter that launches those sparks uh, that misbehave and injure these kids. So they come in the hospital, we uh, make a large incision on their skulls, we remove the bone, big pieces, pancake size, we open the little covering, the dura mater, and then we put a grid about the size of a deck of a card, thin the shape, the thickness and everything, and it's got these wires coming off, it's, it's plastic. And then we put the skull back on and we put the, uh, the stitch the scalp up, and those wires are coming through the scalp and they're connected to a, a machine on the wall. And they have to live in the hospital for weeks at a time, waiting for that earthquake, the seizure to happen, and, and where we can capture uh, which 
where exactly under that grid did it did it spark? So we may remove it potentially surgically and cure the kid. Well, here's what happens. During that time, the kids and the adults that need this are incredibly bored. So and and you know, and and neuroscientists and students and PhDs and graduate students, they come in and say, Can we hang out with you for a couple hours? And can we talk to you? And because you're getting 24-hour data, minute, second-by-second second recordings of what is going on actually on the surface of the brain, not electrodes on the scalp. And what they found was a powerful thing. They went in there and they did this breathing technique with them, mm-hmm. four seconds in, hold for four, four seconds out. And almost all of them showed a significant decrease in the electrical patterns in their brain. So there was proof that deep meditative breathing can go backwards up the vagal nerve, use the mind-body connection, and actually calm yourself. Okay. And to me, that's extremely powerful that without drugs, that we have always had a resource that we can apply in the car, on the tube, at a test, to calm ourselves and maybe perform better and deliver that knowledge we know we can deliver. Fantastic. And the way that what you're describing, these, these deep breaths, it's just a, it's like 10 seconds or something, isn't it? It's, you know, it doesn't take long. Well, it's a good question. People don't know it's, it's 30 minutes better than, but we know just it's a very quick thing. You know, you 10 of those breaths that might take, you know, 10, you know, a minute or two. And uh, we can all spare that before a tense situation, especially if it's going to help us navigate it better. I was just thinking in the exam situation, you know, time is of the essence. So you can't spend too long doing this deep breathing. Yeah. Well, you do it before the exam starts and they have these structured breaks, but you're right. And, and, um, and I think that's the best way. That's the way I guide my kids about, uh, you know, getting ready for the test and being your best at the test. So that sounds like very good advice. What about test preparation because he you know even if the the exam is about methods and you have to learn methods and how to um how to do specific tasks but also how to analyze things inevitably for all exams there's going to be some remembering of facts you know you've got to get information into your brain and you know you'll have to regurgitate it at some point for, for for exams um any advice on ways to do that yeah the acquisition of raw knowledge is best done um over an extended period of time you can't if you're going to look at material five times you can't just do it all the same day you got to look at it a few weeks ago broadly come back and revisit it. There need to be pauses between your exposure uh, for the best learning environment. So there's proof cramming doesn't work because you need the space in between. It's better than not studying, but having stepping away and doing something else and looking at material after a few hours is helpful. Structuring your studying pattern to where you look at it on Monday, you come back on Wednesday and Friday, that's helpful. Uh, and then there are all sorts of memory tricks, but memory is really just about repetition and repetition on the material you're struggling with. So if you've got it, it should be taken out of the deck so you don't continue to look at it. Right. Uh, those are, those are standard, uh, 
standard techniques used by students. But the separation in, 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 within time is very important. All right. Um, why, why could that be? What, what is our brain doing to kind of make that have to happen? Well, I think it's about, there's a phrase for it, it's called potentiation. But I think we're inundated with so much that the brain wants to know, look, I keep getting exposed to this. I better hold on to it and turn it into long-term memory and not just short-term memory. Short-term memory is the night before, is the morning of. So the space, uh, the repeated hits of exposure, I think, trigger the brain to say, this is important material. Right. worth holding on to and applying resources so it potentiates that memory okay all right well that, that that's you know that that sounds perfectly sensible and, and i think probably is my my experience from when i was uh, taking exams one thing i have <laughs> noticed is that you know I, I i did exams in my well when i was at school and university in my 20s i haven't done an exam for a while but i do find i'm i'm in my 50s now just remembering things is now harder. Is that because yeah. I'm out of the habit? Because I really am out of the habit. I haven't done an exam for a while. Or, you know, does our brain change and it becomes, you know, what, why do I struggle to remember things now? Yeah, all of it. Um, out of the habit and our brains do change. There are many types of memory. And I think remembering names and where you left your keys, that gets harder. Um, but also procedural memory stays with you. So the concept of memory being just one thing, remembering things, it has been a disservice to, uh, to the way we see ourselves. Yes, learning, memorizing new phone numbers, although we don't need to do that now with our phones, but memorizing new facts gets harder, but uh, memorizing new places gets harder, but places familiar to you from the past they can be deeply entrenched. Sometimes people who have uh, dementia will find their ways to homes that they used to live at. So memory is, is quite dynamic. The other type of memory is procedural memory. Tying your shoelaces, driving a stick shift is memory. Mm -hmm. That tends to stay with us. And the memory I find most fascinating, not facts and tidbits, but they call it working memory. How to juggle 10 different responsibilities today and have them like a symphony unfold perfectly because you're juggling all those things in your mind, multitasking, if you will, effective multitasking. That's called working memory. That's the memory I think most of us want to have more of. How yeah. can I not drop the ball? How can I get things done? Pick up the kids, make dinner, remember to do this, remember to do that and not feel frazzled by that. Um, that is the challenge now that is the kind of memory I wish I want to would have more of and could develop. And some people feel, I don't know if there's a, the debates about it, but that playing memory games and doing puzzles and brain training uh, is like cross training. And it can also help you with that multitask memory, that, that working memory that we want more of much like doing push-ups might actually help you open, push open a door, doing memory games and math games and puzzles may actually help you juggle the 10 things of the day that you want to pull off seamlessly. Uh, that's my understanding of memory. But the, the forgetting where things are and, and the difficulty in absorbing facts as we get less young, I think that's all natural. And it doesn't mean that's a harbinger or predictor of 
uh, impending dementia, uh, most people have that mild cognitive decline in sure. memory, yeah. and they never, I, I, yeah, never I, I end mean, up I, having I, Alzheimer's. I, I don't find myself worrying about it. I don't think, oh, God, this is the start of the end, for sure. Um, I just, <laughs> Not the start of the end. <laughs> I just take, take it in, in, in my stride. Um, so, right, well, good advice there for students for, you know, doing, doing their um, work before the exam and then advice for during the actual exam. So that's uh, excellent. And I'm sure if people want to become... Um, study medicine and then become surgeons they're going to have to do an awful lot of that so they should take note <laughs> you, you learn it all and then you when you are when you become a surgeon you have to rely on just uh you know flow and instinct it's an interesting thing it's like music you learn it all and then when you play you kind of have to forget it and just let it out just let it out all right well that sounds like another topic there almost but certainly thank you very much for chatting about this topic uh Dr. Randall, so thank you very much indeed. I appreciate it very much. I don't take these opportunities for granted and thank you for including me. Dr. Jandal has written a book, Life Lessons from a Brain Surgeon. I've read it and I, I really do recommend it actually. It covers, covers the topics in my four interviews with him and much else and it's essential reading for anyone who thinks or anyone who moves, i.e. everyone really. It's a great book. Give it a go. Shortly we're going to hear from um, skiing Olympian Shemi Alcott. Let's back UK. Run by my daddy. So my next guest Shemi Alcott is a winter Olympian, now a presenter on Ski Sunday, amongst many other things. And I started by asking her how many Olympics she has competed in. Yes, four. So 20 years of my life, which sounds like an eternity, but was focused on being an Olympian, being the best I could be, because you start your Olympic preparation four years beforehand. So that's quite a long um, athletic career, especially in a sport where you're known for getting injured a lot. Well, I, I was going to ask, is that kind of normal to, to be able to compete at that level uh, for such a long time? I mean, can a human body withstand that? Yeah, I mean, I missed quite a few seasons within that with injury, but I never missed um, a, the, an Olympic season. So I was quite, I guess I was, I was lucky the years I got injured wasn't an Olympic year. Um, but yeah, I think in skiing, because injury is part and parcel, you've got to be able to risk everything in order to be your best, in order to improve. Um, injury is, is, is part of our journey. We know that it's going to happen. It's inevitable. So you kind of just brush it off do your rehab, miss a year and get back to it. And I know that makes me sound blase, but that is the nature of this kind of outdoor, very skillful adrenaline sport. I've got to say, that sounds kind of scary to me. <laughs> I mean, you know, I, 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 I have been skiing like, on holiday once or twice, um, but ooh, goodness me. So how, how many bones have you broken then? Well, if you Google my name, it says 49 bones. And I, when I retired, I did this uh, feature with um, Sky News. And they did this epic research into all the bones I'd broken and shattered. And they came to that. And um, I never actually realized it at the time. I mean, it, it wasn't individual breaks. When I broke my leg, I broke it into so many pieces that that was obviously multiple breaks. Um, but yeah, I mean, there was quite a lot. I started, I broke my neck when I was 11. So my C5, C6 vertebrae fused together. 
And, but that wasn't my biggest one. My biggest one was definitely my compound tib fib where my bones actually broke through my ski boot, my right leg. Oh God. So are you kind of, you're presumably your, your bones are held together with screws and plates now. Yes, I've got a 15-inch metal nail down the bone marrow of my right leg, so I don't actually weight bear through the bone anymore. I just weight bear through the metal. Right. Does that? Does that, I mean? Does that cause you pain on a daily basis? Um, no, not on a daily basis. When I'm when I'm working out really hard, the the thing that hurts me the most, I guess, is when I'm skiing really hard. Um, I get quite a big swelling on the front of my right shin. Um, and that causes a lot of pressure on my ski boots. That's why I have retired essentially, because I love to ski. Skiing is my passion and I do it all the time, but there's difference with skiing um, at speeds that I am now to the 90 miles an hour that I skied before. There's different okay. exertions on the body. So when you ski now, is it just for fun? Yeah, just for fun. I'm actually doing a race for Ski Sunday next year. And I definitely, I'm married to a ski racer as well. Uh, he's retired too. So we definitely push ourselves um, and each other. Um, we still will go towards the limit. I, we definitely don't go on our limit anymore. Right. Okay. Gosh. <laughs> What's a family skiing holiday with you lot like? Oh, so good. We actually, we had one last year and it was our first ever one where um, our older son, who's who at the time was two or just a little bit after two um, got involved and we went skiing with him in the mornings and then we had the baby in the rucksack. The other baby was in the rucksack skiing around, which I don't recommend to everyone. You know, it's not, not for everyone doing that. <laughs> uh, the health and safety conscious ones of you out there might be going, what? She's a nutter. Um, and then, you know, going to the swimming pool every afternoon, I just thought that the family holiday being in the mountains was epic. Does, does sound lovely actually. But so you still do a lot of skiing. What else do you do to keep yourself busy? Oh, I mean, I, I'm doing fitness all the time. I try and fit in three gym sessions a week and then I do two at-home sessions. Um, I do mostly HIIT training, uh, weight training. I don't love endure doing endurance anymore. Um, and I just really like to go as hard as I can <laughs> to okay. get a really good sweat on. Um, my time's quite precious now with being a business owner and managing myself and uh, and the babies and being a mum so it's about what I can fit in when um there's a new class at David Lloyd called Blaze which I love because you just get in this like hurt tank and it's dark and it's loud music and you're just going for it and I love that what did you call it in a what tank hurt tank the hurt, hurt. tank you know, the hurt tank. The hurt tank is when you go into that kind of zone of pushing yourself and every exercise is to the burn. We call it the hurt tank. Okay. All right. No, I hadn't come across that phrase. <laughs> I, 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 actually, I feel kind of slightly glad I haven't. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm not in that world. I love doing exercise, etc. cetera, but um, I, I'm not sure I push myself quite as, as uh, far as you do. Um, you, you have a, a charity that you started. Yes. Yeah, so um, I'm an ambassador for a bunch of charities, but um, with United Learning, uh, I started to work with them a few years before London Olympics. And then after London Olympics, we had this amazing movement and we were trying to create this legacy where more young girls got into sport. Um, and unfortunately, being so successful in our home games and having these iconic, amazing role models who had won gold, sort of had the reverse effect because these young girls thought, you know, if I'm not going to be Jessica Ennis, then there's no point in me going to my PE class today. They didn't understand the value of sport. And, you know, for someone like me who never achieved their goals in sport, it's really imperative that young children especially learn life values through sport because you make mistakes, you, you fail, you lose. 
and you have to pick yourself up and do it again. And that really is synonymous with life. So we had this big um, meeting about how we could how we could help change this, especially in young girls. It was very prevalent. Young girls were, were not going to PE lessons. They weren't understanding the reasons behind sport. Um, and we created this, this initiative called Excel. And we went up and down the country to all the United Learning Schools and created leaders um, for girls to understand the, the life lessons, the values that sport was bringing them. And, and they then went into their communities. And we now have 10,000 leaders. I did it with Alex Danson, the hockey player. Okay. Um, and it was, it was just really important to go in there and change their mindset that it's not about winning. Did you find out why, sort of some of the reasons why children, particularly girls, are sort of getting turned off from sport? Was it as simple as, well, if, you, if I can't get a gold medal, then I'm not going to do it? I mean, no, there's, it's very complex. There's self-confidence issues. You know, they're going through puberty. They, they don't understand the changes in their body. They don't want other people to see those changes they feel exposed and vulnerable, um, especially the co-ed schools. They felt like the boys were watching them, which actually in the research we found they weren't. Or when they did watch, they were watching to see who was doing well in PE and admiring them for that. Um, uh -huh. But yeah, there was a lot. They, you know, I remember one school, the, the big issue was they hated their PE kit and they, they really hated how they looked in their PE kit. So um, United Learning helped them redesign that PE kit and the attendance went up by 80%. You know, my so, wife is 53 and she still talks about her PE kit at school. Oh, the pants, the pants, the athletic the brown yeah. pants. Yeah. Yes, exactly. She I has mean, to wear green ones. It's scarlet. Exactly. Yeah, that's exactly what I went through as well. So I see them going, hey, that's not bad. It's absolutely fine. But, you know, it, it's a different world now. It's a, it's a world where the, the phones are around everywhere. People are taking photos and, and everyone has got so self-conscious of the image that, that, that they're putting out there that, they don't want to be exposed. You know, I remember going, yeah, I hate these pants. You know, I was a little bit chubby, but I didn't care because no one was taking my photo. I was just out there playing games, having fun. Right. So is, do, do you feel like you're making progress? Yes, definitely. I think this, you know, whole, whole value of sport, it's being recognized by um, you know, the government. It's being recognized in schools now. And um, I, I'm really hoping that moves forward and that we can get a message out there that, it's not about the medals. It's not about the victories. It's, it's about making mistakes, taking responsibility when you make a mistake and failing and learning from that and using that to, to believe in yourself more, to, to handle the situations that will be thrown at you in the future. Yeah, actually, sometimes I must admit, I, I get um, confused because people say, oh, we're a load of couch potatoes now. But I have been for the odd um, run. I did a the London Half Marathon. You know, you do events like that. There's thousands of people and there's thousands of people doing park run as well. It's, it's almost like we're becoming two distinct camps, those that do and maybe those yes. that just don't. Yeah, like America, we are either fanatics on health or it's not on our to-do list at all. all right. And so, uh, the, the, I, I just think, it, so I, think it's more about, I think it's more about education. I think, you know, for me recently, I did a, a transformation in myself. So when I finished the winter last year after my second baby, I was 83 kilos. I was really unhappy with myself. My energy levels were really bad. I'd gone back to work two weeks after giving birth and I was reaching for the sugar left, right and center because I had to, I, I needed energy and I was sleep deprived breastfeeding at night. But when the season ended and I finally got on top of things, I, I knew that I needed to do this. I needed to get my health back for me. Um, yes, aesthetically, I didn't like looking in the mirror, but that was a secondary effect. It was, I needed to believe in myself 
um, as a woman, not just as a mum. And as as an aura in my body I am because it gave birth, I still want to be able to push myself to physically limits. Um, And so I went and did three months of really, you know, concentrated training and eating right and cutting out the, the carbs and and it had a massive effect and I ended up losing 13 kilos in 12 weeks. Wow did you manage are you still like that because you do hear stories when people sort of go through these transformations they do it and then I've actually continued to lose weight afterwards. So for, for me, I mean, I, I'm probably a different kettle of fish in that I was a professional athlete for a long time. So I do have the nutritional knowledge. I just was choosing not to follow it and I'd had bad right. habits. So it was just about being reminded of what my body needs. Um, and I was able to do that in a healthy way. And now I keep supporting that in my daily life. So it was very, it's very manageable for me. And I think my friend, my friend who wrote the program is a three-time Winter Olympian, um, Sarah Lindsay, and she runs Raw Fitness. And she, she understood how to talk to me. She talked to me like an athlete again. And I needed that. I needed someone to kind of look inside me and go, I know that you've got the drive inside you to be healthy and fit again. And, and that's really helped. And so she's, she's an Olympian uh, skater, is that? Yes, exactly, yeah. Excellent. All right. So she, she, she has been there. We went to three Olympics together and never talked. Um, and then when we retired, we both did the BBC Olympic coverage together and found out that we live 200 metres away from each other. So this friendship has blossomed. And that's been really imperative to my kind of health journey, having her there on board. Okay. I remember when, when she cut out sugar from my diet from day seven, eight and nine, every day I sent her a, a WhatsApp going, yeah, but come on, there must be one thing that I can eat that isn't naughty. And she's like, no just be, be strong. No, be strong. No, be strong. And eventually I got over the 10 day hurdle, she says, and, and I have been fine since. She didn't come knock on the door to check up, check on you, did she? No, no. Make sure there weren't any biscuits stashed. Yeah. <laughs> so I, you, you mentioned you have children. If I, if I may, if we just talk, talk about life as a, as, as a parent a little bit, because I, well, I, I have children and um, I, I'm, I'm not an ex Olympian. But I do have children, so I can relate to that a little bit. Uh, <laughs> how, how old are your children? Um, in January, Lockie will be three and Cooper will be one. Okay, so quite little. Mine are a little bit older than that now, but I can still remember uh, what it was uh, like to have uh, little ones, you know, with the sleep deprivation and all the rest oh, of it. Crazy. But, we're teething at the moment again, front tooth. So, ugh. you know, every hour of the night we're up. But something that I, I really found is you know, carrying children around and just simple things like putting them in the car actually it can be quite a chore the car seats seem to be designed to make you go in the the, you know the most difficult positions holding a reasonable weight out away from your body yeah Um, is is it the same for ex-olympians oh 100 percent, 100 i mean my boys have always had to be in the car because we traveled quite a lot um but i know friends who've had oh tantrums and one of my girlfriends was an hour late meeting me once and, uh, and she said that it took an hour to get her screaming child in the car. But there are some actual swivel seats now that make it a lot easier. I don't have one, but I just saw them the other day and they turn out so they can exit towards you. And I was thinking, how genius is that? But no, it is. I mean, all these things, they just, you, you, you've got to be on their level. You've got to talk to them and, and talk them through the kind of process goal. I guess being an athlete, that's something that I'm used to. And <laughs> give them, you know, the adventure is waiting, but we can't get there unless you sit in this seat and things like that. So a little bit of bribery, 
absolutely. I, I, I was thinking from the point of view of actually just getting back pain from having to put your child in 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 the seat. Um, yeah, I mean, I, even carrying carrying kids, you know, they're 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 good ten kilos plus, and you put them on one side always, or always on the hip, and yeah, yeah you, you look you make compensations for that, and one side of your body is stronger than the other, and yeah, the constant back pain. And it's not like you've got any time for you to fix any of those little niggles either. You know, the, the, the kind of dream, oh, when they go to bed tonight, I'll do some yoga, I'll do some mobility work. Well, you never do. No, no. So th have you had any of your old ski injuries playing up because you're, you know, carrying children on one side at an awkward angle and all the rest of it? Um, I, yeah, I, I have a, a constant niggle on my, in my right uh, neck that comes about from, from, bad posture carrying the boys and well playing with the boys kind of being a bit mental with the boys um but I've actually just started to get in the last four months physio again so I, being an athlete I used to have physio and an injured athlete quite a lot almost every single day right. and then when I retired five six years ago um I haven't had physio since and then um my leg started really hurting so I found this scar therapist who's a hotshot physio as well and so I started seeing her about a month ago um, and it's just amazing the difference, like a little bit of TLC. It's hard because it's hard to invest in yourself, both financially and with the time. But for me, it's it's been really important. You, you mentioned a scar therapist. What's that? Oh, so I've got really big leg scars and um, the scar holds on to the tissue and the fascia on my leg. So I have no mobility through my ankle. Um, so I used to do a lot of work on it. Uh, friction on the scar and um, I haven't done it for so long that the the scars kind of almost joined to the bone because the skin's really thin there so she's going to be doing therapy on that special technique all right so I mean really the the, um, the result of your elite skiing it, that's going to be with you isn't it for forever obviously you've got nuts and bolts on your leg they're not going anywhere but you know it's, it's oh, going to yeah. be with you forever yeah, but I mean, I was so fortunate to have followed that life of sport that almost, you know, those niggles, they remind me about what I was able to put my body through. Um, <laughs> I, I do not see it in, bitter, in a bitter way at all. Good. So no regrets? Definitely no regrets. Good. If, if people have been listening to this and they've heard you talking about the, uh, the charity, the XL charity, and uh, they think, oh, that would be really useful for either for my child or my school where I teach um, how can they get involved? Um, if you go onto the United Learning website, um, there's links to the work we've done there and, and kind of support and email systems there for how we can try and come into your school and make a difference using sport. Okay, so that, and that's easy to do, is it? It's just yep, straight yep. through. Okay. And also, if people think, oh, she sounds like a great person, I'd like to get her, book her at one of my events, something like that. Do you do stuff like that? Yes, I do quite a lot of after dinner speaking corporately and at schools and social media. You can get hold of me always on social media. I'm Shemi Ski on Instagram and Twitter and Shemi Alcott is my athlete page on Facebook. Um, so I tend to check them more prevalently in the spring and summer times, but I am on it on the winter too, but just a bit busier. That, that's because you're busy skiing, is it? Yes, and I run a coaching business with my husband, uh, Carpe Diem Coaching. So we support young people and host on snow experiences to develop life skills through skiing. Oh, excellent. Um, well, give that a plug. What, what's the website for that? Oh, that's www.cdcperform.com. Excellent. And um, yeah, it's, it's really important that 
like I said, it's kind of the same motto that I have in everything. It's not just about winning. Yes, we want to create really fast ski races, but it's, it's about teaching children to gain confidence through sport. Right. Excellent. All right. Well, look, that sounds like a perfect place to finish. So, Shemi, thank you so much for chatting. Thank you, Mike. Thank you very much to my guests on this week's show. And they were Dr. Rahul Jandial, neurosurgeon and neuroscientist, Shemi Alcott, winter Olympian. And of course, thank you to you for listening. That was Mike Dilk of Relax Back UK. Thank you for listening and please join us again next time. Uh-huh.